And welcome to Weekly Review. On that note, no more presidents, including the one we have, including mm, the previous presidents. Thanks for listening in. You're listening to Mutiny Radio. We are broadcasting live here. We are in San Francisco. We're on Ohlone land. Uh, thank you for listening in. Uh, provide a trigger warning. We'll be talking about news and current events and super troubling and traumatizing uh, that's been the theme of the show. Not the theme of the show. It's just been, it's what happens when we talk about what's happening or uh, certain things that are happening. Not everyone's talking about it. It's been a very difficult week. I say that every week and it seems more and more so more overt attacks, hate crimes. 11 people were killed at a synagogue in Pittsburgh last weekend. Two black folks were killed in Kentucky by a gunman in a supermarket. And these are only the things that we're hearing about. Another activist was killed in Ferguson. So while these attacks keep on coming, it has to be up to us to to stop it and to do something about it since clearly people in positions of power tend to push for it. And as far as, if you've listened to the show, we know we're not huge fans here of law enforcement since they happen to go hand in hand with some of the folks who do commit these hate crimes. So folks went to the Republican, one of the Republican clubs in New York that the Proud Boys had been at and were, were protesting, were sitting Shiva in a way as well to mourn for the folks who were killed and asking the Republicans just to, to condemn white supremacy and white nationalism. That's what they were asking. And these folks were also arrested. The folks were asking them to renounce white supremacy. They were arrested by the New York Police Department. So for folks who think, oh, the police will somehow save us, the police are, they're not on our side. So what is it going to take to organize, to protect ourselves? And previously, we saw that the, the Proud Boys weren't even, charges weren't even brought until folks started having to share the the video footage because in the past police have just let them go same as in portland same as here in, in berkeley thinking about the the number of times they've gathered here and maybe it was it's been a very long long year maybe it was a month ago when they again white nationalists and folks who support Western chauvinism or whatever they want to fucking call it gathered in Berkeley. Many people came to protest and the police not only protected the nationalists, they shot like tear gas and rubber bullets or flashbangs at the folks who were trying to, to stop those folks from gathering in Berkeley. So the police protect them. So what's going to happen? It's difficult to feel optimistic. One has to be optimistic because <laughs> if we're not, then I don't know the point. And at the same time, to organize. And I know a lot of folks are exhausted. And also, since this has been going on for hundreds of years, it's really, it's extremely frustrating for folks who have been doing this work for as long as they've been alive. And some people are now finally starting just to realize how entrenched law enforcement and government is with white supremacy. And of course, the gunman in Pittsburgh was taken alive. 
and police can't seem to do that with unarmed black people who aren't committing any crimes. So there's also been really not feeling like being here today, to be honest. I'm glad I'm here. It's important to to speak up. And it's also just, it's, to be honest, it's just fucking, it's extremely exhausting and painful, especially when one identifies with many of the groups that are being targeted. And again, that's, that has always been the case. And there also is an overt uh, it's more overt than it has been. There's been an uptick, so much so that there was an attack recently in Nigeria that the army killed a group of people, and they, I believe it were Shia people, and they they showed a video of Trump to defend themselves for, for doing so. Well, Trump says it's okay, so we can do it. And also... Well, we'll be getting into a little bit, or at least mentioning that the, Brazil has elected a fucking fascist, a straight-up fascist, and that wouldn't have been the case if uh, the U.S. hadn't backed a coup on the previously democratically elected leader. So, it's 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 deeply upsetting when we see things going on and we mention, hey, this is fucking problematic, this is a problem, and people don't pay attention or don't understand, and then it gets worse and worse. So, yeah, Dilma Rousseff, who was elected in Brazil and was impeached. And there's another person who was... running in Brazil and I believe was also arrested. It was just lots of suppression and that's another thing. Vote oh so yeah, election day is coming up on November sixth and I know a lot of folks are really like gung ho. A lot of liberals are like, yes, you know, and uh I appreciate that and I feel like we need to have uh, alternate plans between all the vote the voter suppression that's happening and also the idea that um you can't vote out people's behavior. People are going around killing people, having certain people in office um, might send a, a more hopeful message to people. And at the same time, that's not really, how is that going to stop the violence? So, and I guess it's up to all of us, up to myself to find, I think self-defense is super important. And that's what it has to be, self-defense. And, um, yeah. I do have some positive news stories, but the positive news stories on this show are often, well, there's some other good things that are happening. I I don't want to say that nothing positive is happening. Lots of folks are going on strike. Google workers walked out around the world. The Marriott workers are still on strike. So folks are organizing, and that's super important, and I'm really grateful for that. Folks are organizing. And at the same time, a lot of the, the positive things that happen is, is a reaction to the negative things that happen. So last week, there was a policy memo that went out that was super transphobic, looking to take away rights from trans folks and intersex folks and non-binary folks. And people have been you know, showing up to say that, hey, this is fucked up, no. So there was a trans flag that was 
uh, f- activists brought to the World Series that said trans people deserve to live. There was a giant trans flag that was spread all over the Lincoln Memorial. There's another letter here that's been signed by, at this moment, as of today's October, oh, it's November now. Wow, October was something else, right? As of November 2nd, uh, it's been signed by 1,642 scientists that say transgender, intersex, and gender nonconforming people won't be erased by pseudoscience. And I'll, I'll read the letter here. As scientists, we are compelled to write you, our elected representatives, about the current administration's proposal to legally define gender as a binary condition determined at birth based on genitalia and with plans to clarify disputes among uh, using genetic testing. This proposal is fundamentally inconsistent not only with science but also with ethical practices, human rights, and basic dignity. The proposal is in no way grounded in science, as the administration claims. The relationship between sex chromosomes, genitalia, and gender identity is complex and not fully understood. There are no genetic tests that can unambiguously determine gender or even sex. Furthermore, even if such tests existed, it would be unconscionable to use the pretext of science to enact policies that overrule the lived experience of people's own gender identities. The proposed policy seeks to erase the identities of millions of Americans who identify as transgender, individuals whose gender identification differs from their assigned sex at birth, or have intersex bodies, individuals with biologically atypical patterns of male and female traits. In transgender individuals, the existence and validity of a distinct gender identity is supported by a number of neuroanatomical studies. Though scientists are just beginning to understand the biological basis of gender identity, it is clear that many factors, known and unknown, mediate the complex links between identity, genes, and anatomy. In intersex people, their genitalia, as well as their various secondary sexual characteristics, can differ from what clinicians would predict from their sex chromosomes. In fact, some people will live their entire lives without even knowing that they are inter- without ever knowing that they are intersex. The proposed policy will force many intersex people to be legally classified in ways that erase their intersex status and identity, as well as lead to more medically unnecessary and risky surgeries at birth. Such non-consensual gender assignment and surgeries result in increased health risks in adulthood and violate intersex people's right to self-determination. Millions of, identi- millions of Americans identify as transgender or gender nonconforming or have intersex bodies and are at, increase, 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 excuse me, at increased risk of physical and mental health disorders resulting from discrimination, fear for personal safety, and family and societal rejection. Multiple standards of health care for transgender and intersex people emphasize that recognizing an individual's self-identified gender, not their external genitalia or chromosomes, is the best practice for providing evidence-based, effective, and life-saving care. Our best available evidence shows that affirmation of gender identity is paramount to the survival, health, and livelihood of transgender and intersex people. Given its scientific and ethical failings, we call upon the administration to withdraw this proposed policy. We also ask our elected representatives to oppose its implementation as it would cause grave harm to transgender and intersex Americans and weaken the constitutional rights of all Americans. Transgender and intersex people deserve equal access to their rights, livelihoods, liberties, and dignity to which we are all entitled on the basis of our shared humanity. So again, it's been signed by over 1,600 people, and you can find this if you go to https colon forward slash forward slash not dash binary dot org forward slash statement. So thanks to all the scientists for, for signing that. And again, it's the one positive thing that happens is that when 
many folks are under attack, hopefully, ideally, people come together to defend. And again, it's it, all, of course, would be better if none of this was happening in the first place, if we weren't being attacked. But we are. So grateful for the folks who are showing up. Something else. And since a lot of folks, uh, especially in Washington and in this country, they don't listen to ethics. They have no ethics. They have no morals. They don't fucking care about people's feelings. They do care about money, though. Funny how that works out. So I am grateful that 56-plus companies have sent a strong letter to 45 that trans people won't be erased. And this was written by Joseph Pedro, and it is from globalcocktails.com. And this came out uh, today. Responding to a rising tide of legislative and administrative attempts to further marginalize transgender, gender nonconforming, and intersex people, including a recent report by the New York Times on administrative efforts to erase transgender non-discrimination protections through reinterpretation of existing law, 56 major companies today issued a business statement in support of transgender equality. The statement also comes at a time of heightened violence against marginalized people, including the communities affected by the political violence of last week, the massacre at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the hate crimes in Louisville based on race, and the attempted serial bombing campaign against prominent political leaders and news media organizations. Noting that diversity and inclusion are good for business, (sighs) again, it should just be like good for humanity, but if it makes them listen, yes, it's good for business too. And that discrimination significantly harms transgender people and imposes enormous productivity costs. The statement calls for respect and transparency in policymaking and for full equality under the law. The full text of the statement is included below. The companies signing the statement as part of its launch represent nearly 4.8 million employees, have a collective annual revenue of more than $2.4 trillion, and are drawn from a broad range of industries, including financial services, consumer products, and technology. Additional Corporate signatories are expected to join the letter in the coming days. The companies signing the statement are part of its launch are part of its launch represent nearly 4.8 million employees, have a collective Okay. Okay, I already read that. Equality is not a right for some, but for all executive actions and laws that allow discrimination erode our ability to foster vibrant, competitive workforces, which halts growth, creativity, and innovation. Our workplaces and communities must be diverse and welcoming for all people, regardless of race, sex, national origin, ethnicity, religion, age, disability, sexual orientation, or gender identity, said Elizabeth Woods, Chief Resources Officer of Levi Strauss. 14 LGBTQ plus community organizations, led by Out Leadership and the Human Rights Campaign, Uh, organized the effort to secure corporate signatories. The coalition also included Athlete Ally, Freedom for All Americans, GLAD, uh, GLSEN, Lambda Legal, National Center for Transgender Equality, National LGBT Chamber of Commerce, National LGBTQ Task Force, Out and Equal, PFLAG National, The Trevor Project, Transgender Legal Defense, and Education Fund, which is TLDEF. And it's not included in this article, but I have read that some of the companies included are Apple, Nike, Ben & Jerry's, um, I think Google as well. So a lot of really big companies have signed on to this. So yeah, okay. Next up, for folks who uh, are, are into folks getting elected, transgender women, women, plural, sworn into elected positions in Fairbanks, Alaska. So representation is super important. Um, also, of course, want to note that it's great if they have good politics as well. It's one, you know, it's... I, I think having good politics is, is equally as important to also being, you know, represented because there are some, anyway, 
You get you get me. You understand. So this is from the Associated Press and also in the Anchorage Daily News. Fairbanks, the first two transgender women elected to public office in Alaska have been sworn in for their new jobs. Kathy Otterston is serving on the Fairbanks City Council for a one-year term, while Liz Like is serving on the Fairbanks North Star Bureau Bureau Assembly for a three-year term, KTVF-TV reported this week. Both won their races in the municipal election in early October. Otterston and Lake said being transgender is just one aspect of their lives, and they are much more than that. They say they sought office to serve their neighborhoods, friends, and families. This person isn't just a Republican or Democrat. They also care about this thing or that thing. They volunteer to do this, Lake said. We see people in their whole entirety, which is really important, and I think that's what people did with Kathy and I. Like, oh yeah, I see more than this one thing. Otterston says she hopes the matter can be just as ordinary as saying what blood type a person is. I would love it if we could get to that level as humanity. The Earth might be well, I think the Earth will be fine. Humans might not be around. Uh, feeling feeling pessimistic today, I have to be honest. Um, there are good things happening, and that's why I do share these stories. Positive things that are happening. Okay, we've got a lot more stories to tell. Stories to tell. There's stories, new stories. We do have a call coming in. I'm really grateful at 1 p.m., so looking forward to that. Also, is election day. I promised, or I said there'd be some election stuff to talk about. So if you're voting in California and or San Francisco... Um, obviously, if you're in San Francisco, you are running California. The, we'll be going over a few different propositions here. And I also want to encourage folks, if you check out uh, theleaguesf.org, which is the League of Pissed Off Voters, they have a voter guide that comes out. There's also the Bernie Kratz, the Green Party. There's someone on Reddit posted in the San Francisco subreddit, which is often a, a terrible place to be. Uh, based on some folks' opinions about it's really classist nonsense. Anyway, someone did post they went through all or many, at least eight voter guides and compared and contrast what folks were voting for. And of course, many folks are in favor of Prop C and Prop 10. Those are the two big ones. I think it's, and Prop E, those are the ones I know most about. And I'm just really encouraging folks to vote and tell folks to vote about yes on Prop C, yes on Prop 10, yes on Prop E. Uh, C and E are for San Francisco. Prop 10 is a statewide proposition. Uh, you can read more about them if you go to voter <laughs> the league sf.org and they also have a they also provide um, the different positions that folks are uh, running for if you're in san francisco also for district six matt haney not sonia trouse sonia trouse who gets money from the sfpd and is just really no no good so yes matt haney for district six also um mia satya for the school board want to um mention me up to vote for me okay lots of also a hell no for prop five which is to expand prop 13 prop, prop 13 for property owners that's a hell no um i can yes uh, i'll read the state propositions prop one it's a four billion dollar bond for affordable housing that's a yes prop two allow previous bond money to be used for homeless housing yes prop three nine billion dollar bond for water projects they say yes for prop four 1.5 billion dollar bond for children's hospitals yes five again expand prop 13 for property owners no hell no prop six repeal gas tax and require two-thirds vote for future gas taxes hell no prop seven start the process to eliminate daylight savings time yes prop eight regulation of kidney dialysis charges they say yes i've heard mixed uh i've heard mixed things on that one 
Um, Prop 9 is no longer... It got kicked off the ballot. It was a pretty bad proposition. Prop 10, repeal Costa Hawkins, allow expansion of rent control. This is a yes. I got a text the other day from someone who was like, are you going to vote no on Prop 10? And I'm like, who the hell are you? I didn't say that, but I was like, who are you? How did you get my number? And no, and ew. I actually did type ew, but I... Someone just doing their job, so I was like... So I had to go back and say... I know you're just doing your job, but no, it's yes on Prop 10. And then they didn't really listen to me at all, which was really frustrating. And they didn't say, okay, thanks. Um, but they, and then they were like, oh, well, Gavin Newsom's voting no on, on Prop 10. And I'm like, oh, well, that's even more of a reason for me not to support Gavin Newsom. Thanks. And then they also, then I, I shared some information with them. And then they, they still shared another link with me of like the lies that landlords and rich folks who want to, who want uh, Prop 10 to, not pass are sharing with them and it was really frustrating i got a lot of texts from a lot of people telling me how to vote and i didn't agree with all of them and that was a bit frustrating anyway uh, i guess yeah get out the vote blah 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 hopefully there'll be some i view i view voting as harm reduction and i view direct action as <laughs> much better and i would love to be if we could be more focused on that because direct action gets the goods and uh, we can also do both. That's a thing, too. I know a lot of folks who really don't believe in voting, and I respect that. And I know folks who just do voting and don't think direct action does any good. And it's, uh, there's more that can be done after you vote. That's the thing. Even if things go the way we want them to, and they don't, because there's not really going to be any ballots that I'm aware of that, that are going to like make capitalism disappear or arrest war criminals. Uh, if those were on the ballot, I'd be, yeah, let's do it. And I am, you know, to a certain degree, yes, it's great for some of these propositions that will, especially a Prop C, which will provide uh, funds from wealthy businesses to house and provide mental health care for folks who are unhoused. That's super important, and that's great. We do need more propositions like that, and I do hope that passes. And we also need more action. So even if these things do, even if the props we, we do have pass, we still need to be continuing to work. And for folks who say, who just say, oh, voting's it and that's it. That's all we can do. Uh, I would encourage folks to think outside the box and look at history. Cool. All right. With that being said, I think it's time for some more music. I didn't prepare too much music today. I didn't prepare a lot for today. It was a pretty shit week. I have to be honest, it was a pretty depressing week goes up and down emotionally uh to witness what's happening um to feel uh not necessarily hopeless but to to feel like i mean folks have always been under attack in this country many folks have always been under attack in this country and there's been an uptick in hate crimes and then there are the folks who are the refugees who are looking to come into this country and idiot 45 sending troops down there and my hope is that many of the folks who have enlisted realize this is fucking bullshit and not only will they refuse to serve, refuse to follow orders, but perhaps they can uh, go after some of the white supremacists in this country. And the same goes for the fucking Israeli military, which I've said for a long time. If they had taken all their force, all their training, all their forces, and all their military and gone after neo-Nazis instead of Palestinians, we might not be in this mess right now, and there'd be a lot more innocent people who would be alive right now, and Nazis who'd be dead, which would be great. So, I don't drink. However, if you feel like drinking to that, by all means. Uh, smoke them if you got them. Whatever. Let's hopefully... We can find a way to fucking organize and 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 come together and, and stop this fucking nonsense. And again, this has been going on for hundreds of years. It's been going on since before we got here. And there are systems in place that keep these they're terrorists, white supremacist terrorists safe. So what can we do to to end that? 
now, as for a song selection, which I have not selected yet, uh, <laughs> gotta go with uh, Linton Crazy Johnson with Fight Them Back, because it's all about protecting yourself from fascists, and I think that's pretty relevant right now, and uh, <laughs> relevant all the time. Thank you. 
Look around. Symbols of hatred and justice all around. Look at that one. Look at that one. You see that one right there, right? But we're going to talk about this one. Symbols of injustice and hatred, Confederate flag. Symbols of human enslavement, Confederate flag. But what about the red, white, and the blue, American flag? Racist blew that flag when they captured you. For selling shit, me, I came for telling it. I tell it like it is, so my people stay intelligent. We ending it. Racism, slavery, we ending it. This is why we bringing down the flag of the Confederate. I share the same sentiment. Slavery is bad. But slavery was established by the American flag. Follow me. The American flag, it flew in every colony. To bring down the Confederate only is a hypocrisy. Bringing down one flag to raise up another When both flags enslaved my sisters and my brothers Yeah, man, it were others Africans, French, the Portuguese, the English, the Spanish Enslavers for all of these So why raise any flag that killed my mom and my dad Invaded my lands with plans to take up all that they had I'm glad the Confederate flag is banned today But the American flag is still flown by the KKK Symbols of injustice and hatred, Confederate flag. You got to bring it down. Symbols of human enslavement, Confederate flag. You got to bring it down. But what about the red, white, and the blue, American flag? You got to bring it down. Racists flew that flag when they captured you. Arrest the right teacher in the street. I might see you under the American flag. Blacks had no rights either, women had no rights either, natives had no rights either. White abolitionists had to fight against the white preacher. Red, white, and blue should mean red, white, and black. Blue was our indigo color coming from way back. But the system is racist when the murderers are acquitted. So we riot in the streets and you say we shouldn't have did it. They destroying their city. Man, you don't get it. If this was my city, I wouldn't be getting shot in it, stopped in it, harassed, unemployed, and always locked in it. While the guns, the pollution, and drugs are always dropped in it. Turn the TV off, man. Don't listen to all that. You a global citizen. You gotta know all the facts. You a global citizen. You gotta know how to act. And ask yourself, what does the American flag mean to Iraq? Symbols of injustice and hatred. Confederate flag. You got to bring it down. Symbols of human enslavement. Confederate flag. You got to bring it down. But what about the red, white, and the blue? American flag. You got to bring it down. Racists flew that flag when they captured you. American flag.
Welcome back. Hope you enjoyed that music break. Got a few little snippets of news and some history for folks here listening in. We'll be having our call at 1 p.m., so please do stay tuned. Listen to Mutiny Radio, available at mutinyradio.fm. We've got archives of all the shows and lots of good stuff. If you're interested in having a show here of your own, please do contact us, mutinyradio.fm. Give two hours a week to do anything you want. You can have a depressing show about what's going on in the world, like this one. Or something maybe a little bit more upbeat, which most of the other shows are. Pretty good. Anyway, some interesting news here. Something I learned very recently that, well, today is officially the uh, almost 100-year anniversary, but not quite. But on November 2nd, 1920, Eugene V. Debs won almost a million votes for president on the Socialist Party ticket from his jail cell. So in this country, you don't really learn about... uh, For the most part, we don't really learn about the resistance and the history and folks who've fought against capitalism. And there's just one thing. We had a person running uh, on a socialist ticket, almost got a million votes, and he was in jail. And what a world would we like if if he had won. So that's one thing. Another thing is uh, helpful. There's a lot of... I, I know the show can be... For me, it feels depressing. And for listeners, I imagine, might also feel depressing. However, I also hope to provide at least some positive tools that folks can use to make the world less shitty. And one thing was something I read very recently, which is super helpful, and that is if you see a reporter interviewing a racist on camera, yell some swear words. It ruins the footage and they can't use it. Because unfortunately, white nationals, they still give them a platform in media. They write pieces equating the, the two sides. Uh, the New York Times has done this. Even the Washington Post has done this. Uh, the me- media, like TVs, have have done this they interview fucking horrible people with really horrible ideas and horrible behavior and these people do not deserve a platform at all so one thing you can do if you see this happening yell some swear words and they can't play that footage so here on mutiny radio we get to swear as much as we want so that's uh (laughs) that's a little bit different over here and of course it's not major mainstream media over here however if perhaps they had more righteous politics they would allow for people with righteous views on that'd be great okay so i wanted to share those two things with people just some ideas also recommending the site libcom.org they've just a lot of just go there it's uh we don't really do advertisements on the show uh we do well it's it's advertisements but it's for uh things we actually like and just because uh, workingclasshistory.com is another site that has a lot of really great articles. I've learned a lot from this site. So again, go to workingclasshistory.com. They have different podcasts there as well. Maybe we'll end up playing some of it today so I can give my voice a bit of a break. They have uh, something that came out recently. Women in the Miners Strike was one. The League of Revolutionary Black Workers in Detroit, that one came out in August. Uh, there's another one, the GI Resistance in Vietnam, which I'm super interested in. And again, I think about folks who are in the military and what that's like to, to be able to resist. And uh, there are folks here in this country who need to be protected from people in positions of power. And what could that look like? So I think about that quite a bit. And uh, yeah, I think that's maybe we should listen to a little bit of that right now. I'll give myself a little bit of a break and we'll be back around uh, one o'clock. So again, if you'd like to find this and other interesting podcasts, check out, first of all, check out mutinyradio.fm. We've got some really great podcasts on this station. And also go to workingclasshistory.com. So I'm going to get this ready. Thanks again also for listening. Thanks to the folks who donate to the show, which helps provide 
money for dues to keep the space open. And I would love to come in here with some happy news at some point. And it happens from time to time. So perhaps next week, let's hope things are a little bit more upbeat next week. In the late 1960s, following years of US military involvement in Vietnam, an unprecedented rebellion against military authorities and the war began in the ranks themselves. Service people began avoiding combat, refusing orders, campaigning against the war, mutinying and even killing their own officers in a movement which helped bring an end to the war. This is Working Class History. Good my sword and shield, down by the riverside, down by the riverside. Down by the riverside, gonna lay down my sword and shield. Down by the riverside, study war no more. In 1971, Marine Colonel Robert T. Heinel Jr. wrote a report which said, By every conceivable indicator, our army that now remains in Vietnam is in a state approaching collapse, with individual units avoiding or having refused combat, murdering their officers and non-commissioned officers, drug-ridden and dispirited where not near mutinous. In this two-part episode, we'll recover stories of the little-known resistance to the Vietnam War from within the ranks. We'll follow the journeys of Jerry Lemke, a US Army veteran, now author, sociologist and professor, and Bart, who served in the Navy. To see how they ended up in Vietnam, we'll start at the beginning with Jerry, 8,000 miles away in Iowa. I grew up in a small town in northwest Iowa called Hinton, which is near Sioux City. My parents were working class people. I went to the small town public high school there. Went to college at a small Lutheran school in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Graduated in 1966 as a math major. And then I taught eighth grade, ninth grade math in Fort Dodge, Iowa between 1966 and 1968. During those years, I was deferred from the draft first uh, for college, and then as a math teacher, had had an occupational deferment. I really had no views of the war. I was really not political at all. This was 1966. Really, the anti-war movement was just, you know, beginning to stir. But in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, I don't think I had even known about the war, much less the anti-war movement. And then teaching math in Fort Dodge, also the war kind of went past me. I really had no political views. I really had no knowledge about the war. I knew the draft was kind of hanging over my head, but... Frankly, I don't think I connected that with the war. The draft was one thing, and I'm sure I knew that there was conflict in a place called Vietnam, but I'm not sure that I really linked up the two. In 1968, after the Tet Offensive and the U.S. military called up yet more people for the war, then those occupational deferments for people like me were, were canceled. And the draft finally got me and others <laughs> of my age cohort. And of course, then soon after I got drafted, then I was woke. <laughs> I, I began to pay attention and I became, you know, pretty political pretty fast. 
Clark was a young man from Illinois, around the same age as Jerry's students. Uh, military perspective, the, the peak of our troop levels were in 1968. And so if you go back then, I was probably in a freshman in high school when I realized that the war was the reasons that we were there were not the reasons that the news media and uh, President Johnson uh, said we were there. And the more that I learned, the more I realized that we were there for all the wrong reasons. It was sort of like a combination of American imperialism or also related to the anti communist mindset. In summary, then, I knew the war was for the wrong moral and political reasons, and I was against it many years before I was eligible for the draft. The draft exempted you if you were in college. I was in college, but I (laughs) sort of fooled around a little bit, and I got on in academic problems. So then I was eligible for the draft. Due to his opposition to the war, Bart attempted to become a conscientious objector, which would have exempted him from serving in a combat role. You would go before the local county. The way that they did that, they had the draft board set up. And if you, you know, had felt that you were a conscientious objector, then you could fill out a form, and then they, they reviewed your application, and you went before a board in a face-to-face sort of like an interview, I guess you could say, to present your your case verbally and face-to-face. And, you know, they would consider it, and then they came back, I don't know, it was a couple weeks later or something, and said that I'd been denied, but I had the right to appeal. So I appealed it, and you only have the right to one appeal. And so then on appeal, of course, I was turned down. I didn't expect it to succeed. This is such a long time ago, but I believe that what they said was it wasn't for a valid religious reason. Basically, the way they determined it was we had to be a Quaker. Okay, If you were a Quaker, then they would give you consideration on religious grounds. I mean, I was raised a Presbyterian, and (laughs) Presbyterians did not have any kind of a stated position about being against war in general, you know, whereas for somebody like the Quakers did. And so they basically said that I did not have a valid religious objection to the war. And so that's it. You know, you get you get one appeal. The appeal was denied. And so at that point in time, I knew that well, since my draft number was number four out of 365, I was going to be drafted. So I joined the Navy to keep from being put into the Army and probably a grunt in the field. A few years before Bart enlisted. Jerry's draft card got pulled. I went to basic training at Fort Lewis, Washington in the summer of 1968. After basic training there, had options for the advanced training that that we would have, what's called the Military Occupational Specialties, or MOS, And one day there were openings for chaplain's assistant school, and I raised my hand, (laughs) as did about a dozen other people who were of my same age group, and a bunch of us then got selected to go to chaplain's assistant school, which was at Fort Hamilton 
in Brooklyn, New York, right at the end of the Verrazano Bridge in Brooklyn. Chaplains, of course, don't carry weapons. They're non-combatants under the Geneva Rules for International Warfare. But chaplains' assistants do carry weapons, sometimes said to be the arms bearer for the chaplains. So it wasn't a matter of being a conscientious objector or anything like that. It just sounded interesting. It sounded different. In Brooklyn, Joe received an additional training that went far beyond his chaplain assistant duties. New York City was a very politicized environment at that time, late summer, early fall of 68. And that's really when I began to get politicized in, in a lot of ways, began to get educated about the war and a lot of other things. In Brooklyn, coming off post, we would be met by anti-war activists handing out leaflets uh, to us and, of course, trying to dissuade us uh, from continuing in the military. We were directed to a church nearby if we wished to leave the military. Uh, uh, we were told that we could be given sanctuary at that church. And then going on away from Fort Hamilton in Brooklyn, then we spent an awful lot of time in Manhattan, and the place was rife with anti-war activities. My very first anti-war demonstration that I ever witnessed was on the steps of St. Patrick Cathedral on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. And I'm standing back watching and wondering what these people are doing. <laughs> and, and what they're protesting and why Fifth Avenue is, is blocked off. You know, coming to consciousness was thinking those people know something that I don't know. They know something I should know. I need to know what they know. After finishing training, Jerry goes to Vietnam. When I got to Vietnam, about New Year's Day, 1969, then got assigned to a chaplain in the artillery unit. It was just so different that it was anything beyond my imagination. You have to keep in mind this is 1969, and Americans then, and certainly this guy who had grown up in a small town in Iowa, was even more unaware of the world than, than would be somebody today. Of course, we had television, but we didn't have, you know, so much of the global exposure that we have now and my own educational background, small town high school and a kind of conservative Lutheran college at that time, just, I just knew nothing about Vietnam, very little about Asia. So just to see Vietnamese people, to see Vietnamese way of life, you know, to, to see rice paddies and grass roofs huts. Days after I got there, I was just in awe of what I was seeing. And then the other big impression, of course, was the enormity U.S. military presence itself. I had never been around military equipment. So to be around these big guns in the artillery, I, you know, and not, nothing like this in basic training. There was only the firing range and the, and the bayonet exercise so nothing, these big guns or, you know, the big trucks and, and stuff like this, tanks, armored personnel carriers clanking around. And, and then at night, 
Vietnam at night was a sound and light show. The flares going off, the guns going off, the occasional helicopter coming in. Choppers didn't fly too much at night, but the wop, 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 wop of those rotor blades coming in at night. I mean, you could just walk around. It was kind of surreal. A bit later on down the line, in 1972, Bart begins his naval service. When I first got to my ship, the USS Milwaukee, AOR-2, in order for you to talk to an officer, you had to put in a request. And that request had to go up the chain of command. Talk about cheeky, I guess. I put in a request. The enlisted officer that was directly you know, in command of me in my division, and I said, I would like to talk to the captain. Of course, that was unusual. And they said, why did you want to talk to the captain? And I said, because I want out of the Navy. And the petty officer that at that time was sort of dumbstruck. You know, he couldn't believe, I guess, that I had the nerve to do that. But I did talk to him. My request was granted. And I talked to the captain of my ship. And he was actually, he was a good man. I, uh, he was a career Navy man. And, you know, you, you'd have to be to be a captain of a ship. But anyway... His name was uh, Shaughnessy, and he sat down with me, and he was real straightforward. And he goes, well, you know, you're young. Now maybe you'll change your mind. But I said, Captain, I won't change my mind. I'm against this war. I never wanted to be here. I only enlisted because I was going to be drafted. And I'm telling you right now that I want to discharge, and I want to be out of the Navy because, you know, I'm against the Vietnam War. And the aftermath of that was that I was probably, you know, labeled a malcontent. Bart quickly discovered he wasn't the only malcontent on board. There were other people that were against the war. It wasn't just me on my ship. The ship that I was on was a ship that auxiliary underway replenishment supply ship. And what it did was it supplied carriers and their escort ships with supplies and fuel at sea underway. When we did that, there was always an exchange of information then, somehow. I don't know, sometimes I think it was verbal, but other times then we were able, they were able to pass written kinds of information. And I don't know if you know this, but some of the ship published their own anti-war material. And the, the carriers seemed to do that more than the other ships, probably because a carrier is so big and, you know, you could put together a press and, and actually you know, compose and, and print, like a, like newsletters or something like that. So in those situations, then, somehow then we had the opportunity to pass un, unofficial communications. Back in early 1969, Jerry is assisting a chaplain in an artillery unit. The chaplain and I, our day-to-day role was to move around from firebase to firebase, these very small gun placement sites around the Central Highlands, mountaintops, hillsides, moving around by helicopter, oftentimes, or by road, by jeep, in which case I was the driver. So I was out and about more than the great majority of guys who were in Vietnam who got siloed into these small camp areas and really never saw much of Vietnam or much of other military operations other than their own unit. I was in Vietnamese 
hospitals, Vietnamese churches, schools, a leprosarium, orphanages, as well as in U.S. military hospitals. And with the chaplain, I would occasionally get to sit in on briefings for the day. So it was, gosh, it was like a fly on the wall experience. The more people Jerry met, the more he observed a growing discontent. A lot of what I think is construed as anti-war within the military at that time was actually anti-military. I think a lot of the earliest resistance was resistance to military authority. Then things matured from there uh, into of the anti-war stuff per se. And even, you know, things like uh, fragging, say, in Vietnam. Fragging was uh, the practice of the GIs and other lower-ranking Review. I'm joined by Karina Gould. Karina, thank you so much for calling in. Hello? 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 Welcome back to the Weekly Review. I'm joined by Karina Gould. Karina, thank you for calling in. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yes, I believe we, we met um, briefly a while ago. You were here uh, for Common Thread Collective um, or Women's Magazine with Global Val. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for reminding me. Yeah, yeah. So I really just um, wanted, was hoping we can get the word out more about the organization you're with and way we can encourage folks in the Bay Area to help contribute uh, to, to your organization. That's wonderful. Thanks so much. So um, we are with the Segorite Land Trust. It's the first urban indigenous women-led land trust in the country. And we are trying to put uh, land back into indigenous stewardship, uh, rematriate the land. And so it's really important that we work in the urban area to really reconnect people with the land. And I think that over the years that we've been doing work around sacred site protection in the Bay Area for 20 years or more, um, we really realized that it was important for people to reconnect to the land in a different kind of way. But also because um, this is my traditional territory, yes. that it's important for us to also reconnect in a spiritual way and to have our spiritual places re-intact. Um, and it's, it's important not just for me and my family, my grandchildren, and other tribal members, but it's important for the Bay Area to know where the space and place is that they live and that these places are available for them as well. And so we um, have been blessed by um, having actually a quarter acre of land given to us to put an arbor on, which is one of our dance places and our ceremonial places that's kind of open, and um, people have been coming and working with us on it. We have, um, and we're hoping to put it in by this winter. So we actually have a a volunteer day this uh, in a couple of, and 
next weekend on the 10th okay. from 9 to 3 o'clock. And the address is 319 105th Avenue. We share the space with Planting Justice. They're the ones that gave us the quarter acre. Um, and so it was really the first land that's been rematriated to us um, and sovereign land for Ohlone people in the Bay Area. And so, um, you know, kind of mind-blowing that this um, this is going on. We're kind of taking care of a few other places, one in West Oakland. Um, it's a, a small plot that has uh, fruit trees and grapes and uh beds that we're going to be taking care of, as well as working in Albany at the Gill Track and taking care of land there and creating spaces and bringing back California native plants to those areas as well, as well as our medicine. So those are all places that people can plug into and can to and work there. And I know this, I also understand that people live here in the Bay Area and may not know so much about the history yeah. of who we are as Ohlone people. And so we have a website, the Segurite uh, Trust.com, and folks can go there and look up history. But there's also a place for people to, to give. And in our language, the Chochenyo language from this land, it's called Shaumi, mm-hmm. and Shaumi means a gift. And we're asking people that live in our territory that have the means to um, and want to participate in creating this vision of um, rematriation of land in our territory to um, to look at where they might fall in the categories. It's like an honorary tax for being on our territory. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can look up whether they rent or they own, whether they, um, you know, uh, how many bedrooms and how much, you know, and how much they might be able to pay um, is given. Or people can make a, a contribution any way they'd like to. Um, and so that's all, all on PayPal, or people can write checks to our fiscal agent. Our fiscal agent is the California Indian Environmental Alliance. Um, and so those are some ways that people can pitch in. I'd uh, love for people to also check out our, our Facebook page and also maybe um, look at the other work that... Uh, the work that we're doing in collaboration with uh, many universities and stuff around the Bay. Oh, great. Yeah, I was curious about other organizations or or colleges that you all work with. Yeah, so we're doing um, work. We're doing work with Mills College and renaming a meadow that's there. Um, We're we're working with the Dance Performance Arts Program at uh, UC Berkeley, and one of the artists, Rulon, is putting together a piece that'll be... um, um, showing in February with her da- uh, the dance group um, and really trying to work with UC Berkeley on talking about acknowledgement and um, in the Bay Area of the Ohlone people, um, working with San Francisco State with um, uh, doing uh, many different projects, you know, around um, collaborating with the professors that are in the Indigenous um, Studies program, Joanne Barker and Melissa Nelson, and doing work with Cultural Conservancy. So those are some of the different things that we're working on. We're also looking at creating partnerships with uh, the other land trusts that are in the Bay Area. Yes, yes. Um, the Oakland Community Land Trust, um, working with SELC in the Bay Area to really talk about um, what does it look like to be a land trust um, in Ohlone territory? How do we support the work that we're doing? Because we're all working towards similar visions about reconnecting people to land in different kinds of ways. Right. Wow. So can you talk a little bit about um, how the, the land trust was formed? Yeah. So... Um, We had been organizing as a grassroots organization, Indian people organizing for change for 
about 20 years, protected the Bay Area sacred sites, our shell mounds. Mm-hmm. The Ohlone people's shell mounds are our cemeteries. Yeah. And we've been doing work around that together. I work collaboratively with Janawa LaRose, who is Shoshone, Bannock, and Ute. And she's um, lived here in the Bay Area since she was 18 and has been an amazing organizer. Um, we work with other indigenous people and our allies and accomplices to talk about these shell mounds to create walks around the Bay Area um, and to do a lot of education around it. In 2011, the city of uh, Vallejo was going to file bankruptcy and give its park district um, permits for free to destroy our sacred site along the Carquinas um, Strait. And it's actually called Segorite, that village site that was there. Mm-hmm. Wounded Nadeo Campo had grown up in that area. Mm-hmm. He's a Miwok man and had been fighting this for ten and a half years before we actually reoccupied that territory in a um, spiritual way. And um, after 99 days, the city of Vallejo, the park district, and a federally recognized tribe that was not our own um, created the first cultural easement of its kind so that the land would not be destroyed. Um, had we had a, a land trust at the time, we could have created the cultural easement ourselves, and we mm-hmm. realized after we left there that that's one of the tools that we should be using in order to create this land trust, uh, this this way of reengaging people in land. Um, no federal, There's no Ohlone people that are federally recognized, uh, and so we don't have a land base. We've been working on trying to get our ancestors out of universities um, and museums and reinterred back into the land. But being non-federally recognized means that we don't have a land base to bring them back home (sighs) to. Um, and so part of what the land trust will do is find land that we are able to reinter. And it looks to me like the city, uh, like the University of Berkeley, is really now interested in having those conversations um, about how do we do that in a good way. Um, and so we're working with, the, with UC Berkeley about doing that. So really it was about that, about re, retaking over land, yes. acknowledging that we needed a, a vehicle in order to get land put back into our hands, but also about what it looks like for women to hold land yes. as opposed to men. Yes. And what yes. does it look like for indigenous people to hold land as opposed to other people? There are hundreds of, of land trusts all over the country. There are only a handful of native land trusts. Mm-hmm. where most land trusts will um, put fences up and no trespassing signs. Indigenous land trusts are really about reengaging people in the land and ceremony mm-hmm. and um, different ways of being on the land. We thought that it was important for it to be a women-led land trust yes. because we understand that women have a different relationship to land. We have songs for the waters and for the, and for the land and for the basket materials and for the medicines. Um, and we know as a society and hold, not a indigenous society, society only, that men have been creating uh, havoc on land. Yep. And what they generally do to land, they do to women's bodies. Yes. It's important to change that uh, script, Definitely. to work with men in a different kind of way, um, and to have women leadership so that these projects that are going forward have a different flavor sometimes. Yes. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. I mean, just thinking about what's the current events, but then also what's happened over hundreds of years here. And mm-hmm. we're just seeing it's it's much more overt right now. Yeah, yes, it is. Oh goodness! So yeah, thank you so much for for sharing all that information. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me to speak. Yes, yes. Is there anything else? I know you've covered quite a bit, but I'm I welcome you to speak about anything else you'd like. 
Yeah, I, I really would encourage folks to come on on the um, 10th. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, no, the 9th of November to um, the Segorite Land Trust um, work party. Um, and we're, we're going to have a good time. We'll have poets there during the afternoon at lunch break. And so folks are, it's a family friendly event. We also host, uh, the day after Thanksgiving. This will be year 19 at the Shell Mound in Emeryville on the corner of Shell Mound Street and Ohlone Way. Um, a, it's kind of like a protest and a prayer all at once. So we'll be giving out information. We ask people to bring cookies and different things to share with folks. We'll have people that are speaking and praying and singing. Um, and so it's always really great. We usually have about 300 people that show up there. And it's um, from noon to 3 o'clock on the day after Thanksgiving. Um, and so that's a great thing for people to show up and support if they'd like to in um in January, we'll be opening up our new space in West Oakland, and we'll put more information out on the Facebook page um, for people to find out. So I'm just asking people to find us on Facebook, okay. uh, look up the Segorite website, and uh, pay your Shumi tax Excellent. if you live in our territory. Indeed. Great. Well, definitely, um, let's hope a lot of listeners uh, can show up in many ways. Yes. Thanks so much, Roman. Yes, thank you. Take All care. Right. Bye-bye. Bye. Great. Big thank you to Karina Gould for, for calling in and sharing that information. So again, um, you can find the Segreate Land Trust on Facebook. And also, if you can go to the website, which is S-O-G-O-R-E-A-T-E-LandTrust.com and find more information that way. <sighs> really grateful for Karina for calling in and providing all this information. We're going to take a bit of a music break, and then we'll go back to... Then I'm going to announce a few more things. And then we'll go back to the show with some more information. I am, it's, uh, I'm, I'm here having a bit of a difficult day today. So thanks so much for listening and we'll be back in a bit.
Welcome Back. That was Star Amarasu from Major. It's an incredible documentary. I recommend folks check it out. Next up, I said there's a few things that were happening. Um, so right now, as of right now, this moment, uh, folks are lining up. Hundreds of striking Marriott workers are lining the hallways of City Hall here in San Francisco. And from an hour ago, it was ahead of the special supervisor's hearing called to discuss ongoing li- the ongoing labor dispute. The hotel chain CEO declined an invitation to attend earlier this week. I wonder why that is. So sending lots of love and support to all the folks who are striking. And you can follow, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Unite Here Local 2. And yes, so that was one thing. Also, folks are calling in New York. They're calling on, there was a Republican who invited a white nationalist to speak, and many folks were protesting, asking him to fire that person. I've also read that there are folks protesting in Boston as well. And I know there's always a lot of things happening, many, many points of the day, and it feels like it's it's on the extreme. And I also encourage folks who want to help out with the show, please feel free to message me. Find me on Twitter at Roman Reimer is one way. Um, follow me on there. I'm taking a Facebook break. I will be back though to find information that's needed. And uh, I always appreciate the help in terms of finding other things that are going on to talk about as well as other people to interview and to speak out. The more voices we have heard, the better things are. And it's been having a, it's been quite a year and uh, some episodes I feel (laughs) uh, get to my vision a little bit more than others and uh, anything we can do to share to to encourage folks to contribute and to build the kind of world we want to live in. It's not, all hope isn't lost, even though it might feel that way. And I'm probably just speaking for myself. It's been, it's been quite a week. So we also have a, I was a big fan of the, the show, The Twilight Zone, and Rod Sterling's daughter has posted a, audio clip from a monologue about dictatorship and the destruction of human rights, which unfortunately seems really apt right about now. And, uh, and also in Brazil, we're seeing that they're go- the government's going after and the military is going after teachers who even teach about fascism. They have been raiding universities. Um, folks have been attacked and, um, so it seems really, incredibly frightening there and bolsonaro who's the person who was elected just he's doing press conferences without having the press there and it's it's pretty terrifying he's a misogynist he's a homophobe uh he's a fucking fascist ass and so wanting to send lots of love and support to the folks the citizens in brazil who are who are fighting this oh gosh oh gross okay (laughs) and with with that note, uh, let's let's hear this speech. Hmm. You walk into this room at your own risk, because it leads to the future, not a future that will be, but one that might be. This is not a new world. It is simply an extension of what began in the old one. It has patterned itself after every dictator who has ever planted the ripping imprint of a boot on the pages of history since the beginning of time. It has refinements, technological advances, and a more sophisticated approach to the destruction of human freedom. But like every one of the super states that preceded it, it has one iron rule. Logic is an enemy and truth is a menace. 
Any state, any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the worth, the dignity, the rights of man, that state is obsolete. A case to be filed under M for Mankind in the Twilight Zone. <sighs> so that was from the episode, the, the Obsolete Man from the Twilight Zone. We're going to take a... I'm going to take a break. <laughs> and we're going to go back to... I, I know that's... Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the breaks here are not don't necessarily feel like breaks because we'll be going back to, to listening more about the, resist, the GI resistance in Vietnam. However, I do hope that there are some uplifting messages here about way folks can fight back. And there's many ways that folks can, again, fight back. Mutinied and took control of the ship, sailing it to... I knew about and that I saw... And then a lot of the still more minor stuff, the wearing of peace symbols and so forth. And some of that was just to get under the skin of officers. Back on ship, Bart was learning more about anti-war activities elsewhere in the fleet. There were other people that were against the war. It wasn't just me on my ship. And so we used to call it scuttlebutt. Scuttlebutt is a term for gossip. And the scuttlebutt would be, okay, there's an anti-war contingent upon this ship. And we passed information back and forth. When the Constellation came out of San Francisco back into the the combat line, you know, we supplied the Constellation at sea. And there were the rumors were rampant as far as what was going on on the Constellation. There were all kinds of rumors. Some of them were so fantastic, some of us didn't believe them. I didn't believe that there was a, there were that kind of racial issues on the Constellation or that they were the kind of anti-war issues on the Constellation, but it turned out to be true. On the USS Constellation, the first mass mutiny ever in the US Navy broke out, organized by African-American sailors in protest at endemic race discrimination. Black sailors also rebelled on the Kitty Hawk aircraft carrier, and two merchant seamen on the USS Columbia Eagle, carrying 10,000 tons of napalm, mutinied and took control of the ship, sailing it to Cambodia. It was widespread on other ships. I'll give you an example. I wasn't aware of this until later on. The Constellation had big racial issues. But in addition to that, they had a, a commissioned officer who was anti-war, and he actually got the crew together, and he got over 1,000 signatures telling the captain that, that they should have Jane Fonda and, and Donald Sutherland's Fuck the Army review on Constellation. You can imagine how that went over. So that's just one example, but there were other ones. The biggest contingents were on the aircraft carriers. That I, I, I'm sure of. Some people said it was save our ships. Some people said it was sabotage our ships. Some people said it was stop our ships, but... The first thing that I was aware of was that, you know, that was an anti-war movement that was gaining strength among the, in the Navy after I got on the ship. There actually was sabotage on, on several of the aircraft carriers and I think some of the other ships as well. At one time, I think there were like four aircraft carriers that were unable to to go out to sea because either of crew morale or even quasi-mutiny uh, situations or they had been sabotaged 
and they were unable to go out to sea. One time, I think they were like four carriers. I found this out later on talking to other veterans. We had a fellow on our ship that went, we never got the real story about it, but basically he threatened to blow up the ship. He had access to a munitions locker on the ship. He was never fully identified, but the rumor was that this was also, you know, he was anti-war, and that was the reason for it. They, they called us to quarters about 2 a.m. at night, and they had us all stand in a line and put out our hands, and they, they ran an ultraviolet light over our hands. And whoever had gotten into this munitions locker, then there was like a die, like you would like in a bank robbery that you know they would use now. Only it was something that would only show up on ultraviolet light exposure, and I didn't see who the guy was, but I saw him being taken off the ship next day in a straitjacket, and we never heard from him again. Jerry describes what sort of methods soldiers used to resist. There was a lot of. I guess what you call work slowdown or working by rule, I I know that's a part of working class culture. You know, there's a book called The Wars We Took to Vietnam, and the author is Milton Bates. And, And one of those wars is the class war, he says. Labor conflict, you know, class conflict that played out on the shop floor back home transported to Vietnam, and it played out in Vietnam as conflict between draftees and other low-ranking service people and the brass and the officers. And so a lot of it was resistance to military authority, the key word there being authority, and whether it was military authority (laughs) or just authority, I think, particularly after reading Milton Bates' book on this, that a lot of it was simply class conflict. By U.S. military law, you don't have to follow illegal orders. Well, (laughs) in a place like Vietnam, there's an awful lot of discretion. And if you're told to do something, there is a lot of room for interpretation, whether that is a legal order or not. And so you could always refuse that order and then wait for further adjudication. And that itself then is a way of slowing things down. You don't do what you're told to do, and then you wait for the propriety of that to be, to be determined. And so it would impede, it would slow down, you know, what the mission that that was to be accomplished inspections oftentimes the higher officers in a unit would try to pass the inspection of their unit by getting their underlings to falsify records that's one thing that i witnessed people working in the headquarters you know were asked to basically hide records that were not kept up to date well, these guys came to me, the chaplain's assistant, and they said, we're being asked to do this. You know, what should we do? Well, I happen to know that at the end of this inspection, when the inspecting general, before he left our camp, he would have a, what, a, a kind of an open house or a, a time for anybody to 
raise grievances that they wanted to. These are very pro forma kinds of things. I mean, no private is going to walk up to a general and say, sir, I would like to report that. Major so-and-so told me to do this, <laughs> and that's illegal. Well, when this happened, these guys came to me. I said, look, I said, there is going to be this opportunity. And by golly, that toward the end of that day, when the general was in our unit and his other duties were over and he was about to leave to go back to his headquarters, I had guys line up to tell him what had gone down on the days just preceding this inspection. And the officers of our unit were just steamed. They were just livid. They just stood by in a little cluster just watching this line of guys. It was a short line. I don't want to exaggerate, but these guys standing, waiting for their turn to talk to the general and tell the general what they had been told to do. Literally, documents had been hidden behind sandbags, documents that our officers did not want the inspecting general to see. There's one instance. <laughs> now, I not only had the right to do what I did, but it was one of my duties for the day was to make sure everybody knows that if they want to talk to the inspecting general, it'll be at 3 o'clock this afternoon, and it will be, you know, over here under this tree, and, and so on and so forth. So that's what I did. And I told them that they have a right to do this. So, you see, that's a kind of working to rule that kind of threw the wrench into the way the command was, was operating. Things like that occurred out in the field, too, where people would would refuse to do things that they knew they didn't have to do, you know, or refuse to exercise their own discretion on an operation and do something that they were not explicitly ordered that they would have to do, you know, working to rule. And gosh, anybody who's been on any kind of military operation would know that if everybody only worked to rule, <laughs> the operation would never, would never get completed. Just like a construction work job would never get completed, right, if the workers only did what they were explicitly told what to do. Then that class conflict got politicized by the war itself, politicized as anti-war, as people like me began to learn more about the war. You know, I don't think I heard the words colonization or imperialism until I got to Vietnam. And I heard those words then from other GIs, people who knew more than I knew. And, and then the pieces began to fall into place. My first R&R, I had two R&Rs from Vietnam. The first one was in Sydney, Australia. And there in Sydney, I think probably the first morning out of the hotel, I was met a young woman who asked me if I wanted to go to a coffee house. And I said, sure, not knowing it would be an anti-war coffee house. That wasn't on my mind, but it was. I look for peace in the flowers. 
And there I was given a handful of anti-war literature, given a peace symbol, a large, very large necklace peace medallion, which I still have. It's hanging on my wall. I wish I could show it to you right now. <laughs> I went back to Vietnam, you know, carrying the literature I'd been given and, and wearing that medallion, which got me into a lot of trouble in Vietnam. The military authorities not liking that so much. But by that time, this was middle of 1969, lots of guys were wearing anti-war paraphernalia. People were etching peace symbols onto their helmets and, and so on and so forth. So it was, it, it was becoming quite prominent then, by then in Vietnam in, in 1969. Probably that was kind of the, not, you know, kind of the beginning of, of that prominence of GI anti-war activity in Vietnam. From late 1969, the GI resistance movement continued to grow. Large numbers of troops joined a national moratorium, a day of protest in the US on the 15th of October 1969 by refusing to go out on missions. Soldiers sent to search and destroy instead chose to search and avoid enemy combatants. Some anti-war activities became more overt, as GIs published underground newspapers and broadcast via pirate radio. One unit refused orders to advance while being filmed by TV news. And in 1971, the men of Bravo Company, who were acting covertly on the Cambodian border, refused an order to leave their base, then signed a petition against the operation. They were pulled out and replaced by Delta Company, who then refused to go out as well, which forced the army to pull them out, as well as a whole artillery company alongside it. Despite all this, the war continued, as did Bart's deployment. I was on the ship in the Gulf of Tonkin on Yankee Station. We bombed North Vietnam uh, on a constant basis from December of 1972 till the peace accords were signed, I think, in the middle of January of 1973. And I mean the heaviest bombing of the war combined the, um, by the Navy and the, the Air Force. 24 hours a day saturation bombing. And so after the truce was signed and we got back to the U.S., I went, I won't call it AWOL, they used to call it unauthorized absence. I had a petty officer that knew about, you know, about my situation. The only way I can say it is he would give me all these these bullshit details and, and assignments, uh, you know, where I would expose myself to nasty working conditions or, you know, unreasonable orders that, that were just meant to, to make me obey, no matter how unreasonable the order was. Finally, I said, you know, no, I'm not going to obey that order, and I went to captain's mast as a result of it. I know basically I went to what was called captain's mast three times. Two times for the unauthorized absences and one time for that incident. So between those three incidents, then I was, you know, I got, I got knocked down from an E3 to an E1. So it took me, I don't know, several months of disobedience after the truce was signed, there was a force-wide reduction, not just in the Navy, but in the Army and, you know, all the armed forces. There was a huge reduction in force. And so, then, because of everything combined, 
the captain offered me a discharge, and it was a general discharge under honorable conditions, which is now an honorable discharge because they found out that, that was not a, a legal discharge, and they had no choice but to make it an honorable discharge. So I guess what I'm trying to say in, in summary is that <laughs> I sort of had to work to get that discharge, but I made a very plain to the captain of my ship that, that I did not believe in the Vietnam War and I wanted to get out of the Navy. I was discharged in November of 1973. Like Bart, over 350,000 other service personnel went AWOL during the conflict. From the kind of harassment and demotions that Bart experienced, to court-martials, jail sentences, and even threats of execution. Soldiers and sailors were given long prison sentences for things like refusing to ship out, refusing to help induct trainees, or even just for talking to Marines against the war. One Navy nurse was court-martialed for marching on a peace demonstration in her uniform and for dropping anti-war leaflets on Navy bases from a plane. Military prisons everywhere were overcrowded and bursting with detainees. In the Presidio stockade in San Francisco, 27 soldiers launched a sit-down protest against the killing of an inmate, linking arms and singing, We Shall Overcome. They were court-martialed and threatened with the death penalty, eventually being jailed for up to 16 years each until a mass campaign got them released after just 18 months. The Long Bin Jail in Vietnam, designed for 400 prisoners, held 719 by mid-1968, 90% of whom were black. On the 29th of August that year, black and white prisoners revolted, beating their guards, killing one, destroying the prison, and attacking the colonel who came to calm them down. Well, that's it for part one. In part two, we'll be speaking more with Jerry about Vietnam veterans against the war and the legacy of the movement and why it's so little known today. We've got links to more information and further reading in the show notes, including where to get Jerry's books, which include The Spitting Image, Myth, Memory, and the Legacy of Vietnam, CNN's Talwin Tale, Inside Vietnam's Last Great Myth, Hanoi Jane, War, Sex and Fantasies of Betrayal, and PTSD, Diagnosis and Identity in Post-America Empire, related to Vietnam, which he describes as... I've written four books on what I call post-Vietnam War American culture, studies of how the war continues to be processed through popular culture, through folklore myth legends hollywood film of course part two will be online for our patreon supporters on the 6th of august so you can support us and listen to it as well as other exclusive content at patreon.com slash working class history we've also got a patron exclusive episode at the moment on the class war at home the strike wave which swept the u.s during the war part two will be available for everyone else next week We've also produced a range of merchandise commemorating the GI resistance, which is in our online store. Check it out at workingclasshistory.com. All right. So that was a podcast from workingclasshistory.com. If you're interested in listening to the second part, it's also available there. Um, We're going to wrap up the show pretty quickly, or at least in the soon-ish. There'll be no Women's Magazine or Common Thread Collective this week. However, they will be back next week. There's lots of great shows here at Mutiny Radio. Uh, check out mutinyradio.fm. There's music shows, comedy, politics, uh, lots of different shows here. So, And as well as like archives going back at least the last few years. So if you're interested in listening to more shows, please do. 
And if you're interested in having a show here of your own, also please do contact us. There are spots available. We've got some new shows coming up as well. And also the spots available for Space Rental. Also on Wednesday nights, there's an AA meeting. So uh, if you're interested in coming in for a meeting, uh, that's here too. We're on the corner of 21st and Florida in the Mission District in San Francisco. So I'm going to play a few more clips here that I've found online. I know there's a lot that I'm not getting to. There's just one can't really fully comprehend everything that's happening right now. Uh, I do want to pay attention to the positive things, which is folks uh, showing up, uh, the Marriott workers who are on strike, uh, the Google workers who walked out, uh, folks on the East Coast who are protesting and advocating for the Republicans to renounce white supremacy. You would think it wouldn't be that hard. However, some folks have yet to fucking speak up about it. A journalist asked Steve King, who's in Iowa, to they asked him if he was a white supremacist, and he couldn't even say no. So more pressure needs to be applied to these folks. And I really commend all the folks showing up in, in many ways to do this. And I hope the show, if I, rec- I recognize there is just a lot of information out there. So if there's anything else you're more interested in, please do research. The, a lot of the mainstream media doesn't necessarily cover it. So I have to find out from the people themselves. Um, but yeah, follow me on Twitter at R-O-M-A-N-R-I-M-E-R. I post a lot of these stories there. I'll be getting back onto Facebook at some point, taking a break right now. Facebook's, I know Jack Dorsey from Twitter is also super evil and bad does a lot of really bad politics i recognize that and at the same time wanting to really find out what's happening and for the time being that's where uh we find out some of information and where we can share information with others which is super important so right now i'm going to play a couple clips here of other folks speaking out and uh yeah so stay tuned uh, my name is christopher guerra and i've been working in westin gasland quarter san diego for eight years i'm gonna try because uh, for better wages and a better health plan and the rest of my benefits, but not just for me, for everybody else too. For the community to keep it in the same place and not re- being replaced with robots. I have two jobs. My other job is in Mario's Vacation Club. I work overnight over there. And here in Westin, I work daytime. So it's kind of difficult. I miss all my uh, family birthdays and reunions just because I have to work two jobs to keep my house running. This is very difficult. We've been in strike for 14 days and we will continue all the way until Mario Corporation calls us to sign our new contract. Otherwise, we will keep going and going and going. Si se puede, si se puede. And uh, you can follow folks at get hashtag Marriott Strike. Uh, and- there's Local 30, Local 2. So Local 30 is from San Diego. Local 2 is up here in San Francisco. So I want to encourage folks to, yes, follow, share the news, share, spread the news. I think that's also super important um, to, to let folks know what's happening. Also, I think what's super frustrating, a lot of things are frustrating and scary and really enraging and is that i think looking back at the history and understanding why we're at where we're at and seeing it in slow motion as it has happened over the years and now understand and then these are the results so folks who have been anti-war and have been against certain policies that have been set up and against imperialism and colonialism and fighting against it and the u.s kind of has another colony certainly people have like powered through and then these are the results so one thing that is a result is uh they're refugees from Honduras and at tyt.com there's a just there's a there's an article 
that I was just looking at that just talks about the history there with Honduras. And so Ted Cruz, who's ugh, gross, um, his aide, his aide's firm lobbied for Honduran coup regime. So it's similar to also within in Brazil, where it's the and also the the history of uh, Chile as well, where there folks are maybe democratically elected, and then there's a coup, a U.S. backed coup, and then folks there's violence, and folks need to flee to save their lives, save their families' lives, and folks are looking to come here because they need to survive, they need a place to survive, and then of course the government here just it's lies about them and has no it, it's it, it's it's fucking sickening i don't even have the language to fully describe my anger uh, if you're interested in in reading about the uh, the central american migrant caravan though please do take a look at uh, tyt.com and it's a there's an article that came out on october 31st written by ken uh, klippenstein so you can check that out and that has a lot about the that history there and so if we're talking with folks about what's happening just to understand the U.S.'s role in it, ugh, it's just, ugh. yeah. Uh, so with that, I feel like I think there's one more thing I was looking to play. Um, if we can, if I can find it, there were folks who were protesting in Boston as well, folks protesting in many different places. Oh, yeah, it's about 148. We'll be will be <laughs> there's also um students striking in in england it looks like there's a uh, for climate change 29 kids today are striking in uh, england at uh um uh, they're striking it's a hashtag school strike for climate and again i'm reading what i'm seeing there's a lot more information out there so i do encourage all the listeners out there to to find more find more information um, about what's happening. Read, question everything also. So also from the SPLC center uh, on Gab, which was like, thankfully it was shut down, but unfortunately it took a long time. It took people to get killed for it to get shut down. Uh, it was the site that Nazis were, neo-Nazis were networking on. Uh, domestic terrorist Robert Bowers was engaged with uh, several uh, influential other white supremacists, uh, including Jared Wyand, Patrick Little, who lives in Berkeley, uh, Bradley Dean Griffin. So if you go to SPLC, they have an article on that, um, splccenter.org. And of course, anti-fascists and independent journalists have been studying this and getting the word out as best they can. And unfortunately, it, it takes people being killed, more people being killed, I should say, for more mainstream media to be, to wake up and to recognize what's happening Oh, goodness gracious. So also today, uh, Palestinians have participated in the, the Great Return March, which is east of Gaza today. And there are f- photographs there if, if you follow at Days of Palestine. And uh, Code Pink also shared that as well, or liked it anyway. So that comes up as well. Oh, there's a lot happening in this world. There's a far-right GOP state representative named Matt Shea, who is a strategy for a biblical war. I'm a bit too frightened to read that, but if you go to Right Wing Watch, you can find that as well. And there's lots of voter repression in Georgia. However, I do believe a judge just ruled against Brian Kemp, who was looking to repress. He's like he was he's running for office, and he's also trying to fuck with the election. So he's been ruled against, which is great. I 
thought he decided not to show up to the last debate, even though Stacey Abrams, his contender, who many folks are in favor of, is uh, it, Brian Kemp just fucking gross gross i thought i read somewhere and perhaps i misread it that he will he just decided to drop out of the race and that's kind of my hope for a lot of these folks i don't i know they don't give up power easily they won't just give up power easily unfortunately but that would be the ideal situation is that these folks who are causing so much harm would just stop and uh that's not unfortunately things don't go that way but we can at least work together to be sure that people in positions of power no longer hurt people and perhaps create a world where there's no one in, in a no hierarchy and there's no one in a position of power over somebody else. I think that's what, that would be pretty ideal. Oh, goodness gracious. So I'm looking for this one more, the one, one clip more I wanted to play. I thought I had it. It may have been, it may no longer be online at the moment, but I do just want to encourage folks. Thank you for doing what you've been doing. Another little history the piece of history. It's always really encouraging just to read about folks fighting back throughout history. This is from Anarchist Worldwide, which is at Anarchist Worldwide on Twitter. Anti-fascist resistance in France, the Francs uh, Tours Partisans FTP. I know a lot of us are familiar with that acronym, maybe for different things though. FTP. FTP were an underground resistance group active in the 1990s who carried out a series of armed actions, mainly against the National Front. So if you go to revolutionaryresistance.wordpress.com, they have an article on that that came out on January 3rd, 2017. And again, super important to look at history and to see what has worked. And uh, I think a lot of us like to get to the point. We don't want to, we would rather be, we just, it's things have already gotten too late. So that's, that's my point with that. Okay. So I think that's about it. I've said a lot. I appreciate you listening. I don't know if you've listened in parts or the entire way through. I know it's a lot, but thanks again for listening in. There are folks who contribute to the show. I super duper appreciate it so much. It means a lot to me. And thanks to Karina Gould for calling in and um, for folks who would like to learn more. Um, again, the Sogoriate uh, Land Trust is on Facebook as well as uh, sogorete-landtrust.com. They have more information there as well. So if you're living in the East Bay, um, there are taxes you can pay that go back to the back to the land. And also lots of other events coming up that folks can participate in. There's a lot going on. And also there's election day. So there's lots of ways to show up. Lots of ways to show up. So thanks for showing up in any way you can. And hopefully next week I'll be in better spirits. Um, hopefully there'll be some more positive things to talk about. Yes on Prop C. Yes on Prop 10. Yes on Prop E. Uh, vote if you can. And also encourage folks to create the world we want to live in. All right. Have a great week, everybody.
stay home, just crowd and cut mail. Your guns go off if it's time to bust mail. They tanks have time to rust. They got the armies turning bullets into gold. They got the hookers turning tricks into coal. And every time the police kicks in the dough, an angel gas breaks dips in the O. And even if a D-boy flips in my O, it ain't enough to buy shit anymore. Sleep in the doorway, piss on the floor. Look in the sky, wait for missiles to show. It's finna blow, cause they got the TV, we got the truth. They own the judges, and we got the proof. We got hella people, they got helicopters, they got the bombs, and we got the, we got the, we got the Whether inflation or globalization 